0: listening to the bible 126 show Book of Deuteronomy We're in the 6th session we'll take chapters 13 and 14 and uh, they may go actually pretty quickly Chapter 13, verse 1. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Oh, see where he's headed here. You know, it's interesting how we always tend to presume that um, signs are from God. One of the things, and he's warning them here, that even if someone does miracles, don't let them lead you to another God. That's going to happen in the end times. There's going to be a leader rise to power, most attractive guy the world has ever seen, and he's going to do, according to Scripture, signs and wonders, the same words that were used of Christ. He did signs and wonders. This coming world leader is going to do signs and lying wonders. We won't be able to discern their lines except by the Holy Spirit. You can expect to see people uh, raised from the dead, whatever. And it's going, the world is not ready for that. The world reluctantly will accept a miracle of some kind and assume that's, a, that's an authentication of the living God, not necessarily. That's what he's saying here. Heavy stuff here. Heavy stuff. Remember when uh, Moses was before Pharaoh. And he threw his staff down and became a snake. Remember what Pharaoh's magicians did. Same thing. Same thing. You, most of us say, well, it was just some kind of parlor trick they pulled off. Apparently not. Apparently not. There's passages that indicate that they had occultic powers. We have no grasp of, of the kind of occultic powers that may have been operative there. And so uh, be alert. That's what Moses is saying here. If a sign of wonder come to pass, wherever he spake of these saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, or let us serve them... Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, the whole issue is how much do you love God. That's the issue that lurks behind each one of these injunctions, each commandment. We went through the Ten Commandments. Each one of those Ten Commandments we went through last time is an issue of not just breaking the laws. is issue do you love God enough? The great crime of adultery. The greatest part of that is a lack of love of God. That you feed your lust rather than to to, to love God enough to forbear. To follow what he tells you to do. Thou shalt not hearken to the words that prophet or dream of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and ye shall serve him and cleave to him. Pretty straightforward stuff. And that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be what? Put to death. Boy, could we clear up some broadcast bands by following this here. That prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he hath spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in, so shalt thou put the evil away from the midst of thee. God did not mess around. Has it ever occurred to you that in ancient Israel they had no prisons? Think about it. They didn't have any prisons. <laughs> they uh, dealt with it rather rather uh, severely. And... Uh, this whole, all these things are tests of uh, how much they love, uh, love God. And one of these, one of the reasons they not only they got rid of these influences because there's always a temptation that they might uh, yield to, and uh, that was what uh, got, they were to love, follow, revere, obey, serve, and hold fast to God. So, the death penalty was for a false prophet was appropriate. For if he would successfully seduce people to idolatry, he would bring them under God's judgment. So killing a false prophet was one way to deal with it. And uh, I'm not quite sure how we would apply that today. I think we'd clear a lot of uh, broadcast bandwidth if we (laughs) followed that up. But uh, you must purge evil. That injunction occurs nine times in this book alone. Nine times. If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, nor thy fathers, namely, of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from one end of earth, even to the other end of the earth. You know, this is probably... One of the most tragic and difficult things to deal with is when you have a loved one, a brother, a son, a wife, whatever, that is uh, tempting you into idolatry. That's a tough deal. That's a tough deal. Thou shalt not consent unto him or, or hearken unto him, neither shalt thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare Neither shalt thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely what kill him thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people he's not saying you do it individually he's implying that you that person will be put up for stoning but when 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 the judgment is made and they're put up for stoning, you the accuser will be first to throw the first stone, and then the rest of them that's what that's really what they're saying here and uh person being tempted, of course, you first respond by not yielding, of course, don't consent, and uh, then uh, do not listen to him implies that he continues, and, uh, and you not to let that stay in secret. That was uh, something that they brought before the congregation. And naturally, because uh, you love that person, you would be tempted to cover up for it, but that's not what Moses is saying here. They're a, they're a small group and they're, they're, they're in effect, and they're going to be in, co- in spiritual combat, and they take these things very seriously. God's commands are to rule over human feelings and human experiences. But he's not saying kill him individually. That, that, you, know, you can read this out of context. He's talking about uh, going through the procedure, which includes stoning. Now, see, here it goes in verse uh, 10 Thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. God is saying, Take me seriously. God expects to be taken seriously. Now, you and I may not be quite in that same posture that they were, but I think we should have the same challenge. We need to take God seriously. We live in an age where it's an easy grace that's preached, a, 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 a soft gospel. Uh, there, there's a tendency for us to, uh, to uh, not recognize that God means what he says and says what he means, and God has some very clear specifics about how he will be worshipped. And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. Verse 11. And if thou shalt say in one of thy cities, which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain men, the children of Belial, are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which ye have not known. Boy, this is... This is very dangerous, especially to the nation as a whole, for some leaders to take a following in some inappropriate direction. Wicked men can lead a whole town astray. If that happens, then thou shalt inquire and make search and ask ask diligently. And behold, if it be truth and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought among you, Thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword. Boy. Very intolerant, isn't it? Very intolerant. That uh, Now this is so drastic, they had to make sure of their facts before they charged off. And if, if that was the case, they were to treat that city like a Canaanite city, even though it was one of their own, but one of their own that had gone wrong. We see parallels of that in a sense when you see leaders uh, with the following take people off in a doctrinal direction that's contrary to the Bible. Serious stuff. Now, we don't go out and stone them, and we don't go cut them down with a sword. Those days are, that's not appropriate. But uh, it's interesting that when they did this sort of thing, all plunder was destroyed. They didn't take, uh, you know, um, uh, advantage, spoils, if you will. And it was all supposed to be destroyed. The the town was not to be ever rebuilt. All this is to preclude any greed or uh, illegitimate motivations by those who would uh, pursue something like this. And but this obedience to this would bring moral cleansing to the land. But then, in mercy and in compassion, the Lord would increase their numbers. And uh, as He promised under oath, back in chapter four, you may recall. And of course, for the most part, needless to say, Israel failed to apply this. These commands of this chapter. This resulted in the northern kingdom and then later the southern kingdom being uh, taken into captivity and so forth. Thou shalt gather all the spoil of it into the midst of the street thereof, and thou shalt burn with fire the city and all the spoil thereof and every whit for the Lord thy God, and it shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. That's the instructions. This would purge the city. This would also purge the people doing this. It would be a key lesson to everyone involved it was proving that they take God seriously. And there shall cleave naught of the cursed thing to thine hand, and that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger, and show thee mercy, and have compassion upon thee, and multiply thee as he hath sworn unto thy fathers. You may recall that after Jericho, that incredible victory given to Joshua and the people at Jericho, the next attack was on a town called Ai. And, and, and one guy hung on to something he thought, oh, that was pretty neat, so he kept it for himself. And because of that, they got clobbered. They got clobbered. Until they found out who it was and dealt with that, and then God gave them the victory. When thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God to keep all his commandments which I command thee this day, to do that which is in the right, right, in the eyes of the Lord thy God... Um, Oh, period. I'm sorry. I read that wrong. Okay, I was going because that ends the chapter. <laughs> the chapter didn't leave you hanging. I did. I, that was I just read it wrong. Sorry. Okay, chapter fourteen, verse one. Ye are the children of the Lord your God. Ye shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. Now this is pretty weird stuff, but um, the. Um, by the way, it says the children of the Lord your God. That's not the sons of God. The word children there is Benai, but it's not God Elohim. It's God Jehovah. It's the children of the covenant is is what it's really implied there. By the way, for those that have a problem with that, but uh, the uh, so the uh, the whole point that God is going to make is that this these people were to be distinctive from all the rest. And part of what he's dealing with here are the strange practices that were in the nations that surrounded them they apparently had uh, occultic practices to cut themselves under certain ceremonial conditions. And they were not to do that. You saw that happen, if you remember the events at Mount Carmel, when uh, Elijah sets up the contest with the priests of Baal and the priests of, of the real living God, and how the priests there out of desperation wanting the, their offering to be accepted cut themselves and so forth. And Elijah, of course, makes fun of them and so forth, but, but uh, this cutting itself. So, um, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. They apparently had some practice there uh, for uh, uh, honoring their dead by these these uh, uh, issues, and, and uh, they were not to, and they, these superstitious beliefs about dying and so forth were not to be followed. And some of these even worship dead spirits. You find that happen a lot today. I'm told by a number of people that, that, that a lot of that goes on in the Mormon Church, and uh, this idea of uh, a lot of strange beliefs about the dying of the dead the uh, lacerations and the shaving of the head and so forth uh, really isn't known today. But uh, cutting oneself was a sign of mourning and and these various superstitions. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself. You say, gee, these guys are pretty strange. God intended it that way. They were intended to look distinctive. And I'm not here to necessarily endorse the the, the strange things going going with the Hasidic community and, and, and so forth because uh, they have adopted practices that really come out of the medieval period. But, but still, at the same time, they do accomplish one thing. They set themselves apart, and they are unabashedly distinctive in terms of their belief. That was in, in the spirit of what God is dealing with here. He have chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all the nations that are on the earth. And uh, that was his intention. So some of the things he's going to legislate are arbitrary to set those distincti- distinctives. Thou shalt not eat any abominable thing. Now, as we go on from verses 3 on through 3 through 18, there are all kinds of animals and birds listed, the identities of which are quite uncertain. We're dealing with uh, uh, well-intended translations, but... As you, if you get in behind each one, you'll discover there are some ambiguities and uncertainties that scholars still uh, puzzle over. We're going to discover that um, in the first group, there are animals that walk on land. And any animal could be eaten if it had a split hoof, uh, divided in two, and choose the cut. And uh, there are ten such animals that are going to be listed in verses 4 and 5. And um, those that meet only one of these criteria were considered ceremonially unclean. And these included the camel, the rabbit, the coney or rock badger, if you will, and the pig. Now this is kind of fun because, <laughs> um, well, I'll come back to that. Let's see, let's, look, look, let's go through this. Um, these are the beasts which thou shalt eat, the ox, the sheep, and the goat, the heart, the roebuck, the fallow deer, the wild goat, the piagrang, whatever that is, and uh, I can't remember having one at a restaurant, and, and the wild ox and the chamois. Every beast that parteth the hoof, and cleaveth cleaveth the cleft into two claws, and cheweth the cut among the beast, that ye shall eat. Now let's talk a little bit about this clean and unclean. We're going to go through the whole list here, but let's just stop for a minute. Uh, Why are they clean and unclean? Some people would argue that the clean and unclean was to protect them hygienically. And it's true, you know, that pork can be a source of uh, trichinosis, which is... uh, Uh, Common, if not prepared properly and uh, the hair also is a carrier of uh, tularemia but that isn't the issue I don't think even though that happens to be true because there's a lot of these things that are not injurious hygienically and yet they're still prohibited Um, by the way Jesus declared all food should be considered clean in Mark 7 ooh that's interesting and this was confirmed to Peter you may recall Acts 10 where the sheath came down take eat and so forth that was tearing apart the so-called kosher laws in a sense. And uh, so so hygienic is one theory behind these. Another one is that these things were alluded to in pagan cult rites. That's one hypothesis that's advanced. Indeed, they are said to be detestable in Deuteronomy 14, verse 3. But uh, another group suggests that they are symbolic of uh, uh, good and evil. See, this idea that they're somehow... uh, um, Limited to pagan cultic rites is a little awkward because um, um, there were some unclean animals like pigs that were used in cultic rituals. But there are other examples like the bull, which is very common in pagan rituals. They were allowed to eat. So that doesn't quite uh, fit. So, third explanation, of course, is that they they were symbolic of good and evil in in the human realm and and some kind of, and and some people hold that view, but that's hard to enforce. It's very subjective. And the other possibilities are simply pedagogical distinctions that uh, the distinction between uh, 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 clean and unclean is something that God arbitrarily established to set them apart as his. But there's a final enigma that I'll leave you with to think about. The question is, how many of each animal did Noah take put in the ark? Anyone? Two of everything? Two of everything? Almost right. Seven. Seven. Very good. He took two of the unclean, seven of the clean. And most people, if you look at, you know, Genesis 6, 7, and so forth, the flood of Noah, you come across that. I have a question to ask you that almost nobody asks. How did Noah know? This was in the days of Noah, long before Abraham, long before Isaac and Jacob, and long before the 12 tribes, and long before the tribe of Levi, long before Noah, I mean, uh, Moses himself. How did no one know? The answer, of course, is that these distinctions were ordained back in Genesis along with the Sabbath day. These are not new ideas. They're being codified and made laws to God's distinctive people. But this clean-unclean, whatever the reason, whether it's arbitrary, whether it's hygienic for reasons we don't fully understand or whatever, or are they simply God's way of setting aside a people unique to himself? So no, that's a, that's a, uh, I, I leave that with you. And uh, how many did each take? Seven and two of, of the of, uh, clean and unclean? And presumably the seven, so he had some for for, for uh, offerings. That's the idea, I think, and most people assume. And, uh, of course, the real question is, how did Noah know the distinction, clean and unclean? These are peculiar definitions that are given to us here in the Torah. Long, long after Noah. Anyway, let's move on. Nevertheless these, ye shall not eat of them that chew the cud, or of them that divide the cloven hoof, uh, as the camel, and the hare, and the coney, uh, for they chew the cud. But divide not the hoof, therefore they are unclean unto you. And the swine, because it divideth the hoof, yet cheweth not the cud, it is unclean unto you. Ye shall not eat of their flesh, nor touch their dead carcass. Now we got very intrigued because we understand in Brazil they've developed a pig that does not have a, a cloven hoof. But I guess he still doesn't chew the cud so it doesn't really create a kosher problem like we thought it would, it would raise a real issue for that. I don't think pigs chew the cud, do they? Right. So they're still, they're still not kosher even if they have this uh, solid hoof. Okay. Uh, These shall ye eat of them that are in the waters. All that have fins and scales shall ye eat. Whoops, no crab, no shrimp. Oh, shoot. Whatsoever hath not fins and scales ye sh- may not eat. It is unclean unto you. Of all clean birds ye shall eat, but these are they of which ye shall not eat. The eagle, the osprey, the osprey, the clady, the kite, the vulture after his kind. Most of these are carrion. That's one reason we suspect that they are included here. Every raven after his kind, and the owl, and the nighthawk, and the cuckoo, and the hawk after his kind, and the little owl, and the great owl, and the swan, and the pelican, and the gear eagle, and the cormorant, and the stork, and the heron after her kind, and the lapwing, and the bat. Sorry, gang, no bat meat, sorry. And after, and every creeping thing that flieth is unclean unto you, and they shall not be eating. But of all the clean fowls ye may eat, ye shall not eat of anything that dieth of itself. Thou shalt give it to the stranger that is in thy gates, that he may eat it, or thou mayest sell it unto an alien. For thou art a holy people <laughs> unto the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk." Well, first of all, you guys aren't supposed to eat it, but you can, get, you can go sell it to those Gentiles. <laughs> I remember many years ago, I was asked to be the M- MC of a major benefit for the Magan David Dome. You know, we have the Red Cross, the Jews have the Magan David Dome, the red, the red uh, sign of David, shield of David. And uh, you may be interested to know that if you have a crisis anywhere in the world, the Red Cross provides blood unless they're Jewish. If they're Jewish, they have to pay cash. Did you know that? Seriously. Uh, the Magna David Dome raises its own blood and also raises its own money so it can buy the blood when it needs it. So they have fundraisers. And uh, in Orange County, they organized one where they gave a, a, a certain award to Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel and a prominent rabbi in the region, and I was to emcee the two because I was sort of a bridge because of, uh, I guess, they, anyway, for whatever reason, they picked me. And it was a fun evening because there was a lot of a lot of fun, fun going on. Because one thing we had this huge hotel, very expensive tables. I think it was got how much it cost per table. But it was a lot. And the first thing I did is, how many in this room are Gentiles? And about 80 percent of the hands went up. That was profoundly impressive to the Jewish people present. That the Gentile community in Orange County was really getting behind the Jewish community in this in this regard. But uh, we had a lot of good good-natured kidding going on. The the one of the, the top a lot of rabbis spoke. I spoke whatever. But one of the rabbis explained to us what a Gentile is. Somebody has to pay retail. <laughs> I always think of that. But here they, <laughs> they can't eat it, but they can sell it to a Gentile. It's interesting to know that pearls are in that category. Pearls are not prized by Jews because they're not kosher. They're, 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 they're from oysters. But they're valuable. And so they trade in them because it's a Gentile market but they themselves don't revere them because they're not kosher. That's why it's so provocative that Jesus Christ picks, a in the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13, he picks one it's like a pearl of a great price, which a merchant sells everything he has to get that pearl. He uses the pearl there. It's correlative to the Church of Philadelphia. It's correlative to the, the rapture, if you will, if you, if you get into those structures and understand the prophetic implications. But it's interesting that the pearl is a fascinating choice by Christ to represent the church because it's not it's Gentile intrinsically Gentile it's not kosher it responds to an irritation it grows by accretion and is removed from its place of growth to be an item of adornment just like the church kind of interesting but anyway um, there we have this interesting sentence (laughs) thou shalt not seethe a kid in his mother's milk. What does that mean? The answer, nobody knows. There are lots of conjectures. And uh, what makes this, it, there does seem to be, uh, if you know in the Jewish community, they have a prohibition against mixing milk and uh, meat. This all goes back to this prohibition against cooking a young goat in his mother's milk. It's not only here, it's in Exodus twenty-three nineteen. And it's in Exodus 34:26. Now, it's widely regarded by neutral scholars. They found an ancient Ugaritic text which reflects an ancient Canaanite fertility rite that did that. There was a whole occultic superstitious thing, apparently, about cooking a, a um, young goat in its mother's milk. And this is regarded by some scholars as simply a prohibition specific prohibition against some a, a practice that was very common among the Canaanites however like so many things happen a specific gets broadened and broadened and broadened so th- today in an orthodox Jewish home you'll find two ice boxes two, two refrigerators one for all the dairy stuff and one for all the meat you'll go to a restaurant if you're in Israel or in a, in a Jewish community, you, you, you may have breakfast, and you might have milk and cheese at breakfast, but you won't have meat. Or you'll have some meat, but no milk and butter, no, no dairy products. They separate the two. That's part of the kosher laws. And those kosher laws derive from this prohibition. And um, why? Have no idea, neither do they, except they're trying to be, honor the Word of God. And yet at the same time, this may be in here to prohibit a specific superstitious rite of the Canaanites back in those days. So it's interesting. Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed, that the field bringeth forth year by year. And thou shalt eat before the Lord thy God in a place which he shall choose to place his name there. The tithe of thy corn, and of thy wine, and of thine oil, and the firstlings of their herd, and of all thy flocks, that thou mayest learn to fear the Lord thy God Always. And that's one of the reasons that we tithe. Is It's, a, it's an antidote to covetousness. It's also a rema- reminder that, that it really all belongs to the Lord in the first place. And uh, so, there's a... Uh, the, uh, it's interesting God emphasizes the absolute need for a tithe. There are different offerings. You haven't given an offering until after you've tithed. That's the concept. You say, well, that's an Old Testament idea. No, it's also in the New Testament. And... Uh, so you can, we'll get into all that here, but just recognize that, that God blesses uh, the tithe. Um, verse uh, 24. And if the way be too long for thee, now you're, in other words, you're too far away from where the place, if, e- either Shechem or Shiloh or Jerusalem, depending on what period of time you're talking about, if the way be too long for thee, so that thou art not able to carry it, or if the place be too far from thee, which the Lord thy God shall choose to set his name there, when the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, then thou shalt turn it into money, and bind up the money in thine hand, and shall go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. That's what they did, for an example, is they, let's say they had some cattle locally, but they're way up in the Golan or someplace. They would sell that, take the money, and then go to Jerusalem with the money and buy the cattle there to offer. That's what started leading to the money-changing thing because they, they only would accept temple money and there was issues there and so forth. And so... And thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lustest after, for oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. And thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice thou and thy household. And the Levite that is within thy gates, thou shalt not forsake him, for he hath no part nor inheritance with thee. In other words, take care of the Levites, because they have no inheritance. See, everybody else that's a member of a tribe has some land that serves. The, the, tribal has, the tribe has an area, and there's a piece of that ground that's yours. Not the Levite. He had some cities that were set aside for him, but... He, need to, he, he had to be taken care of. But I want you to notice the whole idea of worship is here. You know, uh, you go ahead and, and get your ox and your sheep, your wine, strong meat, whatsoever thy soul desireth, and thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and do what? Rejoice. Rejoice. The idea of uh, offerings and all of this worship was a time of joy, a time of rejoicing. And, and, and collectively, your whole household. It was a, and the Levites that's in that gates and so forth. So... Uh, at the end of three years, thou shalt bring forth all the tithe of thine increase the same year, and shalt lay it up within thy gates. And the Levite, because he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger, and the fatherless, the widow which are within thy gates, shall come, and shall eat and be satisfied that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hand which thou doest. And uh, every third year, there's a second tithe. It uh, uh, was not taken to the sanctuary but it was used to feed the Levites and the less fortunate members of the society. And uh, the aliens were foreigners who lived within their gates, and uh, they were to be treated fairly, even though they didn't share the privileges of an Israelite uh, citizenship. And uh, widows and also the children of the the, uh, the fatherless uh, were also given special consideration. And if the Israelites uh, obeyed this command to share, they would always expect to live in a prosperous society, and, could be generous, for God would bless them in all the work of their hands. And uh, so ends the lesson. Okay. You know, uh, another subject that I'd like to uh, just uh, include in our review of Deuteronomy is some comments regarding the uh, ancient hygiene. And I want to draw upon some quotes from uh, Papyrus Ebers. This is a document that apparently was penned about 1552 B.C., in other words, 1552 years before Christ was born. Uh, And if you're worried about getting gray hair, according to Papyrus Ebers in 1552 B.C., it says, in effect, to prevent the hair from turning gray, you anoint it with the blood of a black calf, which has been boiled in oil, or with the fat of a rattlesnake. And I, just, <laughs> I, just, I thought some of you might find that useful. Um, are you losing your hair? Well, then, according to the Papyrus Ebers, it says, When it falls out, one remedy is to apply a mixture of six fats, namely those of the horse, the hippopotamus, the crocodile, the cat, the snake, and the ibex, and to strengthen it anoint with the tooth of a donkey crushed in honey. How many of you have tried that? Has anyone here been, uh, tried that for your losing hair? Say, well, don't knock if you haven't tried it. According to the ancient Egyptian culture, uh, that was uh, what you did. In fact, a special hairdressing for the Egyptian queen, Sheshik, uh consisted of equal parts of a heel of an Abyssinian greyhound, date blossoms, and Azza's hoofs boiled in oil. There's another remedy that you might want to give a try. How about Splinters. What they recommended you do with splinters, you embedded splinters were treated with worm's blood and ass's dung. Wow, that would help. See, since dung is loaded, of course, with tetanus spores, it's little wonder that Lockjaw took a heavy toll of the splinter cases. You see, a proper medicine kit, as advised by Papyrus Ebers, would include lizard's blood, swine's teeth, putrid meat, stinking fat, moisture from pig's ears, milk goose grease, Asses' hooves, animal fats from various sources, and excreta from animals, human beings, donkeys, antelopes, dogs, cats, and even flies—strangely enough. Now you say, Chuck, what on earth are you getting into all this for? I want—you know—we can smile if you like at these ancient, supersti- uh, <clears throat> ancient superstitions that uh, are all through ancient media. Uh, people in these ancient cultures had these strange ideas, um, but the point—reason I bring this up. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, when Stephen is presenting his case before the Sanhedrin, he makes an interesting observation. He says in verse 22 of Acts 7, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, we need to recognize that Moses was raised in the court of Pharaoh, from a child up, until he came to uh, his departure. But the point is, he had all the benefit of all this background. So can you imagine the kinds of things that he had been taught in their schools? One of the astonishing observations, the more you know about these ancient cultures, the more amazing it is, is that in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, you do not find any trace of these weird superstitions and notions that uh, was characteristic of the background which he came from. Now, in Exodus 15, verse 26, God prom- makes an interesting promise. He says, and he, but God said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. None of these diseases. And one of the interesting aspects of the hygiene that is in the Torah is that it is so contemporary in terms of our understandings today. That this is one of the reasons that the Jews were conspicuously free of much of the uh, problems that beset the culture that they came from. And uh, it's astonishing that the Torah, the five books of Moses, anticipates many, many, many modern medicine discoveries that really date from relatively recent years. The avoidance of cervical cancer, the isolation that contains contagious diseases, and many modern hygiene things. There's a long list of discoveries that we made 4,000 years later. There, uh, many of them are enumerated in a book by Dr. S.I. Macmillan called None of These Diseases, taking of course from the, the Exodus quote, published back uh, in 1963, and I'm sure there's other volumes that are comparable here. One of the things, for example, is leprosy. That was one of the greatest blights of medieval humanity. It emerged in Europe in the 6th and 7th centuries. It reached a peak in about the 13th and 14th centuries. In fact, it exceeded the Black Death that received so much attention in the 14th century or even syphilis that at the end of the 15th century. These were major, major waves of, of disease in Europe. The Black Death, of course, in the 14th century, uh, we, we know it as the bubonic plague that desolated Europe. About two-thirds of the population was stricken, and one out of four died throughout Europe. It, uh, it uh, is all through uh, literature as one of those, those big... Uh, Big problems in Europe. Now what's interesting is the Jews were so universally free of these infections that they were accused of causing the mortality among the Gentiles by poisoning wells and springs. This is part of the anti-Semitism has its roots way back then because the Jews were conspicuously less affected by the bubonic plague and thus gave rise to all kinds of of, uh, what I should call them conspiracy theories and things. So see the basic hygiene of the Torah Contain cholera, dysentery, typhoid. And uh, all of these things that could have been avoided, uh, cholera, dysentery, and typhoid, especially in Europe, that was major problems through the medieval period, could have been avoided by one sentence in Deuteronomy 23. Uh, uh, Namely, that when you uh, relieve yourself, uh, you do it outside the camp and bury the results. And that's described in Deuteronomy 23, verses 12 and 13. If they had done that, or as they learned to do that, Uh, in Europe that started to contain the cholera, dysentery, typhoid, and those kinds of things. Another interesting thing is cervical cancer. Cervical cancer occurs about 25% of of the cancers in women are cervical cancer. It peaks typically from the ages of 31 to 50. It wasn't until the 1900s in New York, uh, Weinberg at the Mount Sinai uh, Hospital and Dr. Kaplan at Bellevue Hospital both noticed that Jewesses were relatively free of cervical cancer, statistically conspicuously so. And even in 1949, we're talking about a 50 year spread here, in 1949 at the Mayo Clinic, uh, 568 consecutive cases of cervical cancer had no Jewish women involved. They began to realize in 1954, uh, a Boston study, of 86,214 women, that non-Jewish women had eight and a half were eight and a half times more frequent with cervical cancer. And uh, they discovered that it's really caused by smergma bacillus and uh, and uh, its deposits in the cervix of the uterus, that if the mucous membrane is not intact, it can cause irritations and cause susceptibility to cancer, such as, like, for example, lacerations after a childbirth. And uh, it's interesting that 4,000 years earlier, in Genesis 17 we have the, uh, uh, a procedure that facilitates proper cleansing of the virulent bac- uh, bacteria. It's called circumcision. And because the, of the circumcision of the male, the, uh, the Jewish women are less susceptible uh, to these problems. And uh, Now let's talk about circumcision a little bit. It's kind of interesting. When they study circumcision, or they study the, the, the blood in infants, vitamin K, which is a, a, an essential clotting element, uh, is not formed until about somewhere between the fifth and seventh day of an infant. So if you circumcise a child, you don't want to do it before the eighth day because the clotting element, vitamin K, isn't substantial. And there's also another uh, element called prothrombin, which is also necessary. At the third day of an infant, it's about 30% of normal. On the eighth day, it's about 110% normal, and then after that, it levels off at the normal at 100% of normal. So these two ingredients are crucial. So, if you're going to circumcise a baby, you want to do it not before the seventh day or after the eighth day. You want to do it on the eighth day. Now, one of the questions I love to ask is, how did Moses know that? By trial and error? <laughs> I don't think so. And so, Genesis 17, 12. So, the, uh, so this, there is a, uh, a major hygienic challenge to us today. And uh, for which there's no known preventive vaccine. Most people don't know they have it if they have it, and yet they're carriers and are infecting others. It carries permanent genetic defects to the DNA. It results in death. It also subject to deliberate deceit and lies, uh, deceit by the government, schools, and media, and so forth. It's called HIV or AIDS. And uh, it's interesting that uh, many doctors are really upset because it's so highly politicized. Can AIDS be stopped? Yes, by having truth rather than lies being promulgated, to unfetter the medical resources. It's an epidemic, not a civil rights issue. And we need a national policy to protect the uninfected rather than the infected. That's the whole thing in the Torah. If somebody had an infection, they were isolated so the rest of the camp would not get infected. We don't do that. And uh, we have a politically protected situation that is, is uh, affecting everybody. And uh, so this idea of a national policy to protect the uninfected rather than infected is the biblical instruction. And that was the way the plagues were stopped in Europe in the Middle Ages. So, well, and, and this whole issue of gay, you know, the average, men of men, the average age of men dying of AIDS is 39. And of homosexual of all causes, about uh, you know, there's about uh, uh, 41. And uh, 1% lived to 65, uh, homosexuals lived to uh, 65 or more, 3% to 55. Um, homosexual men are three times as likely to have drug abuse problems. They are 14 times as likely to have had syphilis. They are 23 times as likely to get venereal disease, thousands of times more likely to get AIDS. And this is uh, from the Family Research Council, Washington, D.C., from just a, an extraction of 5,200 obituaries in 16 homosexual newspapers over five years very interesting study it, the, the, the figures are in It's nothing gay about that gay lifestyle that's a, that's a euphemism that they've been successfully been able to promote in the press so but uh, one of the questions you can ask yourself why are employers and restaurateurs who segregate smokers judge these kind of guys are as progressive right yet those people who decline to hire homosexuals or AIDS victims are regarded as bigots what's wrong with this picture Is cigarette smoke more hazardous than homosexual sodomy? Come on. Now, there's another hygienic challenge that I'll just leave with you before we close off tonight. It also has no known preventative vaccine. Most people don't know they have it, yet they are carriers and infecting others. It also carries permanent genetic defects. It results in death. And it also is subject to deliberate deceit, promotion by the government, schools, and the media. And uh, it's called sin. It also has a blood cure. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only known cure for the effects of sin. And so you and I, as I often like to mention, are beneficiaries of a love letter. That love letter was written in blood on a wooden cross that was erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. He was crucified on a cross of wood, yet he made the hill on which it stood, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have called us also to be a peculiar people. We thank you, Father, that the law was fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you've gone to such extremes to bring us into your fellowship. And Father, we do pray that you would help each of us to grow in grace and understanding and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray that you would help us to discern the spirit of these instructions that we might, even though not under the law, that we also might be pleasing in thy sight, that we might, in our own clumsy ways, still find favor in thy sight, not by power nor by might, but by thy Spirit, Father. We pray that the Spirit would make it very clear what you'd have of each of us in the days ahead, that we each might be more responsive to the opportunities you put before us. We do pray, Father, that we might be more effective through your Spirit for your kingdom as we commit ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.